millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series talking to people at the forefront of change. But you should never underestimate the power of a conversation. It can reframe the way we think, the information we go on to seek and the conversations we go on to have. This is all part of the change process. My guest today is Shei Akiwowo, CEO and founder of Glitch, and now author of How to Stay Safe Online, a digital self-care toolkit for developing resilience and allyship. Shei has had the most incredible journey. A force to be reckoned with, she became the youngest ever black female counsellor in London at the age of 22. When a video of a speech she made at the European Parliament went viral, it led to a surge in followers, but also sexist and racist comments, as well as death threats. This experience led Shei to speak out about the online world. It's very much knitted into our everyday, and there are so many positives, but there is also so much we allow to go unregulated and unreprimanded. Shayi speaks of the digital platform as being a public space with us as digital citizens and how we should protect ourselves in that space as much as we do offline. Today we talk about Shayi moving on from that traumatic experience and pouring herself into setting up Glitch, a charity looking to end online abuse through awareness, advocacy and action. We look at the fallout of online abuse, including the sobering statistic that 43% of girls hold back their opinions on social media for fear of being criticised. For black women, it's worse. 84% are more likely to be mentioned in an abusive or problematic comment. Online abuse causes more issues than just mental health. It's infringing on human rights and eroding democratic engagement. The right to free speech is often heralded as the reason tech companies have not yet put the right measures in place to protect people online. But as you'll hear, Shayi is not against speaking out, speaking up or speaking your truth. In fact, she's made doing so her life's work. But there are other ways and means to do this that don't involve hate and damage to others. We also talk about the boundaries we ourselves have to put in place in the online world. I saw Shayi speak a couple of years ago and I was blown away by her passion and also had so many aha moments with what she was saying about digital citizenship and the online world. I've been hoping to speak to her since then and I'm so chuffed she chose to make time for this podcast to discuss her life, her work and her brilliant book. Shayi Akiwowo, you're very welcome to Changemakers. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. So this is a great time for you to finally get your book out there. This has been a long journey from a a personal experience that we'll get into to now. How does it feel to have a hard copy in your hand and making its way into people's hands and heads? A little bit surreal. And I'm trying to do a lot to bring me back to like 
grounding and presence to really enjoy the moment because I don't want to look back and like it be a blur. So I don't want it to stay surreal, but I also love the feeling of like, oh, what's going to happen next? But So it's a tricky balance of I'm really excited for my book to be here, but it doesn't feel real. And I want to like absorb every moment of this to the point where before I could open the book, that I, the books, uh, the advanced copies of the books that I received this week, I was like, I'm going to go like shower and meditate, order pizza and my boyfriend bought wine and then like, make it a little bit of a ritual to enjoy it rather than just be another thing on my to-do list before I go to bed and watch Love Island. Yeah, no, you're so right, because this is a big milestone moment. So you're right to really take it in. The book is called How to Stay Safe Online, a digital self-care toolkit for developing resilience and allyship. And, and in it, you expose the depth and urgency of the online abuse crisis. And it is a personal experience, as I say, that led you to this journey. But talk to me first about what led you to get into politics. Yeah, I think I evolved and naturally or organically got into politics without really realizing. And maybe that is the na- that is the best way, because I think we put such a barrier to what is politics and what is change making. And it can just kind of feel really overwhelming. But I, I had a friend, Charlotte um, Polyus, who was stabbed at a house party when I was in secondary school. And she was a dear friend and neighbor of mine. And it broke my heart. And I didn't understand I couldn't comprehend youth violence at such a young age. And I, it, it just, I, when I was now pulling on that anger and, you know, asking why, why, why did this happen? It kind of all led me to my local, my local government, my local council, making decisions around youth cuts and around services and provision around preventative health care and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, and that was being cut. And these decisions were being made by, people who didn't look like us, didn't look like me. And the average age of a local councillor is about 58. It was 60. So in like 10 to 10 to 20 years, we've made a two year, two years uh, progress. So councillors in local government don't really look like the communities that are so hard done by. And that was real like catalyst to want to be a part of that change. And so my activism of like trying to, um, be a kind of youth counsellor and then um, advocate at be doing advocacy work around the issues that was affecting young people then was like I was like okay I actually want to be on the big adults table now I don't want to be in the kind of youth fringe movement of stuff I want to be there um, where the where, where, where the money is basically and that's that's what led me to standing for local government well, I was 22 when I put in an application in and then I stood and got elected at 23. Um, and it was a whirlwind, basically, of four years of realising how to really affect change through a party political vehicle. And how did it feel to get to that table? Obviously, it was a huge achievement and, and moment. And it did give you certain power to influence the change that you wanted. But like you said, most of the other people at that table were older, white, privileged men did that in any way feel jarring? How was it for you? Oh, it was really hard. My naivety got me in there. My naivety maybe kept me for the first year and a half. And then it just starts to eat at you. The othering, the microaggressions, the, and I had it all right. I had ageism. I had sexism. I had racism. 
And what was really tough was that we were all from the same political party as well, which, you know, has its pros and cons for democracy and all sorts of stuff for another conversation. So it felt harder that a lot of these attacks, a lot of this aggression was from people in my own so-called tribe. I found that really, really hard. Um, But that was balanced with what kept me going was that you could really affect change. Like I was so fortunate to be able to represent an area called Maryland where I grew up. I went to Maryland primary school. I hang out, I hung out in Maryland and my first kiss was in Maryland. So, you know, I've got such sweet memories of that area. And then coming back as an adult, um, I saw how run down the area was. Like it hadn't changed. It was it, like it stuck in time. And so I was able to do really important things that brought the community together. First of all, put Maryland on the map. Now people know where it is now with the changes in uh, wards in the UK where, um, with well, in England, in how you uh, vote for your councillors. Maryland is its own ward or district or municipality wherever you may be in your in in and whatever language you may use to describe your local area and i'm really proud of that and really proud of um helping create community groups getting a christmas tree bringing joy to local businesses and helping with like footfall and stuff like that i'm really thinking about regeneration and getting more money into people's pockets and i was also really proud of the fact that um we had a lot of youth violence in Newham at the time. We had huge gang warfares in the north and the south of the borough and no one was understanding that. You had, again, the typical white male, older councillors thinking this was just a youth issue and not really caring unless it affected the gentrified parts of the community. And that irritated me and I was able to work with the police, work with community leaders, work with schools around how are we going to tackle this, this issue of our young people dying? Like we had... We had tens of young people in the borough dying in a space of 12 months and it really broke my heart, including one including one called Corey, a boy called Corey who was just about to start college the day before and he was stabbed um, and left for dead, um, basically, in the playground in my ward. And it massively broke my heart. Um, and that's what kept me going because I was like, there needs to be an advocate, there needs to be someone raising the alarm of this is really important. It isn't just about bins and parking. There is so much more to local council. But it was really hard being one of the lone lone voices um, in a predominantly white male, um, uh, very like individualistic like ideology ideology of 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 um, the leaders in the council who didn't really get what community was about. And I'm sure you were a big inspiration as well, because as they say, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So for your community to see themselves represented by you, that must have created a lot more of a, of a positive feeling. But did you ever feel, because I often think it's through my work, I've worked in TV and radio now for for years in, in current affairs and, and lifestyle. So I've met a lot of government ministers and and Mm. TDs as we have here and often I see some of them that I know started out in a blaze of glory wanting to make a change but then the systems and the way it's all set up just seems to smother them and and and, and catch them is is that a a fact in in politics? I think so I think so I think party politics is just not me like I get that that's the vehicle that we have to affect change um, in this country, but it became slowly and more the focus, like the 
you know, the numbers game, the, the, the negotiating and power plays of like who can get what kind of role and position on the council. It became more about that than actually the community that we serve. And it wasn't doing great for my ego. Like it was now turning my head to something that wasn't the reason why I stood. Um, and I can see when you're in politics for so long, um, how the, how basically the system can eat you and which is why I still believe there needs to be just more of us who want to change the system and who wants to be more inclusive and more transparent and have more ethical values in, in, in politics. More of them need to get be getting in. And it's why I support the work of like organizations like Elect Her um, um, and you know the work that Glitch does to try and get more people from diverse backgrounds into change making positions and there be a community of them so they're not by themselves. I think that's a that's the probably the mistake that I made was thinking that I could go in and change a system that has existed for centuries <laughs> before me by myself and actually maybe, you know, working a little bit like the way we've seen in the US with AOC and Amman, like they're like a tribe now of like newbies in um, in uh, in American politics that are kind of supporting and, welcome- and help- helping each other. And I think that's really key. Um, and I think if you are in any kind of change making, even if it's not party politics, even if it's campaign or activism, I talk a lot about this in my book in in the last chapter around really making sure you have regular moments of checking in with your values and your ethics and your integrity of like, why are you still in this? Like, is this still the way you want to show up in the world? Making sure that your ego is in check, checking its balance, making sure you're forever on a journey of unlearning and learning. Um, I think, cause I think that, I think any system can suck you in, you know, the finance system, the, you know, even like a state agency's own system of just making sure you get more and more tenants in rather than thinking about the care and the, and the kind of kindness that is needed. So I think it's read about really having that moment of pause to just make sure that you are happy with how you look at yourself in the mirror and like what you're doing in the job or the career that you've chosen. Yeah, and especially as we're going to get into the online world with the amount of information that we're bombarded with and and the amount of our democracy that's being eroded and we, we don't even know how our opinions are being moved and formed um and i think the power is really in grassroots so i think that's a really important point that you made that we have to really be clear as to what it is that is important to us and and try and and move through the world in that way let's talk about when life changed for you then Um, you went to give a speech at the european parliament it went viral and it started to build a very positive momentum you were getting mm-hmm. lots of followers and lots of attention and then it took a bit of a a dark turn tell us a bit about that so i go into a lot of the detail in chapter 2 and i don't think i've ever gone into that much detail because i said this is the last time i'm going to replay that event and this book is going to help me draw the line to say that this is that was then and this is now and i and i and i go into so much detail because my my experience of, from the abuse to trying to access justice provided the framework of the book, but also my organization glitch around how do you support someone before they go online? How do you support someone when they're online? How do you support someone when they're dealing with online abuse? What's the role of tech companies and governments and friends and, and you know and family and employers? And then what's that root of justice? What does that look like? And then what does it look like for the individual who's just a face-to-face abuse to make sure they're not going through that cycle of, they're not repeating, sorry, that cycle of violence? 
So it's 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 detailed in from beginning to end because it's that lived experience and that lens as a black woman and understanding and navigating the systems of tech and reporting um, the abuse and um, the police and law enforcement that help hopefully really gets people to see so much of the little things that can be changed to make sure that our online experience, online experiences are so much better. And I'm also like really aware that I'm one of millions of other women who face situations like this. Like the book talks about how women are 27 times more likely to be harassed online than men. And this was a study done by the UN back in uh, uh, 2012. So God knows what it looks like now, 10 years on. We know that when we apply an intersectional lens that we see that black women are 84% more likely to be mentioned in abusive or violent tweets on Twitter. We know this is worse for disabled women, worse for trans people. So I know that my story is an important one to share, definitely, and I and and, and it's there, but I hope it's a catalyst for other for, for, for others to, to share their story in a mindful way without re-traumatizing themselves. But to see that this is this, there's way too many people that are going through this. And I think I also try and share my story around the death threats, the sexism and where I was and how it impacted my offline life and how I had to ne- negotiate with like the police and, you know, my dress being public and all of that. I, I go into a lot of detail because the impact of online abuse doesn't stop. Like there's an impact on me psychologically, physiologically, my finances as well, but also how it impacted my friends and my family and my mum particularly as well. And I also share throughout the book as well, other instances of online abuse. That's not the only one. I mean, I wish it was the only time I received online abuse, but I talk about another example of when I was on my second date with my boyfriend. We were, we were bowling and a, a story broke out and it was all fine. And then somebody, um, Sorry, the, a, 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 an interview that I did broke out um, and, and it went a bit viral and it was all fine. But somebody did a story about it and it took a really negative spin and that started um, another wave of abuse and how that impacted my second date with my boyfriend. And well, it was my just a date at that time. But then how he had to ask me, well, what does someone do in this situation to support you? So I go into a lot of detail because I think um, it will help others to really see like, where are those gaps that could really have been plugged years ago when it's when we talk about gender-based violence? Yeah, and I think it, it's not a good thing that you went through that at all. It would be better if it hadn't happened at all. But to get a true understanding, you can only have 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 understood it and lived through it. And I think what people might not understand was is that it's not just somebody disagreeing with what you said in your speech or it's not just somebody who has an issue with the interview you gave or the politics (laughs) or the points you made because I think people are up for that people are up for for healthy debate and being open to discussion and learning but what you went through and what many people go through is an orchestrated attack just on who you are and what you represent outside of your professional life. And it's something very different and very dark that's not being talked about enough, I don't think. It's like it's a necessary evil of us all being online and Mm. it's actually not okay. And in the book, you talk about how online attacks and online abuse are just a continuation of what we don't put up with 
in other public spaces. Yes, they still happen, but we have laws around it. We it's not something we just accept in life. Why aren't we looking at the online space as a public space? You talk about digital citizenship. Why are you one of the only people I've ever heard talking about that? Yeah, um, there is so much I agree with you there around how does our language, our culture and our behaviours keep belittling what happens online. And I think part of it is that when you talk about, when, when one talks about online abuse or online bullying, we think that someone's talking about being trolled and saying, you know, get out of the kitchen, which is annoying and is low level harassment. Um, but that gets used as like, oh, these are a group of women or, you know, marginalized people that can't, that don't have a thick skin and can't handle some robust debate. That's not what we're talking about here. Robust debate isn't sending death threats. Robust debate isn't trying to share someone's private information so that people know where they live or where they go to work and try and intimidate them. Um, it's not robust debate when someone's blocked you on one platform or someone said, I don't want to engage with you anymore, that you now follow them on other platforms. Like, like as you said, could you imagine that happening offline that you've told somebody, hey, I don't want to speak to you, but they follow you you know, you're talking to them on the on on the train in London, and they follow you on a train in Birmingham, they follow you on a train in in Northern Ireland. Like you'll be like, you are a stalker, and that's exactly it. And I think until we change our everyday language and concept of the online space being an extension of our public spaces, we're going to keep being in this cycle of diminishing online abuse. And I often get asked to debate people about freedom of expression and all of that, and I don't do it anymore because it actually then makes it as if it is a, a, a fight between freedom of expression and online abuse. It isn't because what's happening when you abuse someone online is their freedom of expression is being um, curtailed. They aren't able to engage and, and enjoy the online space the way other people are. And that for me is what digital citizenship is about. I coined the term in this way because obviously being a change maker, being in politics, I was really about citizenship and this kind of idea that we had a social contract with each other, that we had both rights and responsibilities, whether that was the right to go to school and be responsible at school and, you know, be nice to teachers. And I always apologize for not being the kindest to my teachers growing up. I blame the hormones, but we have a right to vote, but we have to be responsible with that. Like we don't do voter fraud and, you know, we have to be responsible. We have to, we have to register to vote. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's low level bits of responsibility and accountability to, in order to enjoy these rights. And it seems that we've, we've in the last 10 to 15 years expanded our digital rights, which is amazing and fantastic and such great opportunities, particularly for marginalized voices and for working class communities to be able to be connected and, you know, to generate income. We've got all of these rights, but we've not talked about our responsibilities. We've not talked about the responsibilities of tech companies. We've not talked about the responsibilities of governments in regulating tech companies. And we've not spoken about our responsibilities as citizens as to each other and as individuals. So I see digital citizenship on an individual level being making sure you're not sharing misinformation, making sure you're fact checking as much as possible, making sure you're not sharing something that you think is a meme content or is funny or banter, but actually is causing someone harm. I saw the um, clip go viral of the two women in Primark fighting in Ireland and, um, it, and I think it was in Belfast and I was like, well, she, something stiff they're fighting this is 
obviously horrible, it's violence. But one of the people in the in the fight um, had soiled themselves, they shat themselves. And I guess that is a trauma response to basically being beaten up, right? And this was now going viral. This was now being like put in the in 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 articles, in newspapers. And I was like, we are drawing attention to this poor underage, she's under 18, this underage um child um who forever will have this digital footprint so how are we as individuals going to make sure that we're not being part of the problem and not perpetuating the cycle of abuse how do we support each other online so if i see a friend facing abuse or i see a friend maybe saying something inappropriate you know jumping on the hashtag black lives matter bandwagon to debate people how can i call them in how can i make sure that i'm also part of a community that wants to generate the right social norms online what does that look like? Because we have it, we do that offline, right? When we want to go out, say it's Independence Day or it's um, you know, it's um it's a national holiday, bank holiday, carnival, whatever it is, if we go out and we're having a drink, we know that we're not gonna drive. We know there needs to be a designated driver. We know that pubs have a responsibility to make sure people are not drinking and driving. We used to see it in our soaps, you know, Peggy Mitchell, landlady of the Queen Vic in EastEnders, would you would see her confiscate phones or say, hey, Phil, go and walk that person to their house because they've drank too much. It, we saw a community take action around keeping our roads safe, but we don't have that conversation when it comes to our online spaces. We're like, oh, really sorry for seeing Diane Abbott go through that abuse or really sorry for ex-celebrity going through that abuse, but not report it or not show some sort of solidarity. It seems really weird. We wouldn't do that offline. And then finally, tech companies, I think they've gotten away with a lot. They've been able to, for the last 10 to 15 years, get away with marking their own homework, which is really insane if you think about it, because every other industry has some form of regulation. Let's take food, for example. We any food packet has to have the ingredients label at the back, has to have the nutrition information, has to have the contents, and has to have allergies, right? If you are more sensitive to a particular food product, it has an allergy label to be like, you know, this is at risk to you. We go on social media, we sign up to Twitter, or we log into Instagram or TikTok, and there's none of that transparent information for us to make informed decisions about how we navigate or use these platforms. We don't know what AI or um, uh, AI or automated decision making or algorithms are being used to incentivize us to stay on the platform or to show us certain content on the platform. We have no understanding. We don't have a basic understanding of how much screen time is damaging our brains or our our uh, mindfulness. Therefore, perpetuates somebody maybe being a bit more rash and reactive and therefore maybe doing something abusive or untoward to somebody else. Like we just don't know enough about tech companies and we don't reg we don't regulate them. We don't hold them to a standard, which I think should be a duty of care, which we ask of every industry finance, particularly after the financial crash, there was even more regulations put on finance industry. We asked it of the motor industry when there was um, a, a time that we didn't have to wear seatbelts um, as soon as the government saw that there was a significant increase in deaths or uh, or um, accidents by um, not wearing seatbelts, it became a thing that the um, the motor industry had to put in place. When we saw drink driving getting out of hand, they put legislation in to say that you can't go over the limit. We don't have any of that for technology. And yet we have new tech being created every single day based on our data, based on our information to lure us into something that we have no idea where it's taken us. And now 
we have Meta. We have all of this in 3D and potentially where you can get technology that you can wear to help you feel this. And now already we're seeing the repetition from Web 2, which is you know the, what we used to talk about, like the World Wide Web. Now on Meta, you've, you've had women bravely tell their stories of, of, of being raped on these um, Meta platforms. And they felt it because they've got the headgear and the body gear and they had no, no way of being able to take another avatar off them on the metaverse. It's, it's insane that this has gone on for so long and how te- fast technology is advancing and we still don't get to have a handle on this. And there seems to be zero consequences for the abusers online. Like you say, to, to use the example of drink driving, you know, you, you see people being breathalyzed at the side of the street. You mm-hmm. hear of people receiving driving bans or losing points on their mm-hmm. license or read about it in the papers of people receiving jail time for traffic offences. And, and, and it's held seriously because of the consequences to human life. And yet we're not talking about it in this con- context. And as we said earlier, abuse online is a continuation of what's going on offline. So racism, white supremacy, the patriarchy, mm-hmm. sexism, mm-hmm. ableism, homophobia, all of it, it's going to exist, sadly. But I was thinking, don't we have an advantage in the online world that when abuses like that are taking place, it's actually being recorded. It's it's written down. You have what people are saying and doing recorded there and matched back to their IP address. Why are there no consequences for those people? Oh. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The big question that we ask ourselves all the time at Glitch, I ask myself all the time when I wake up and I see, you know, another thing in the news or another thing on social media of like, how has this been allowed to go viral? How is this allowed to to be a trending topic or a, you know, a, a, a topical conversation and it's not being moderated properly? I think the first thing is... the. The first reason that I give, and I talk about this in the book, is because the first chapter of the book is is called Why This Book Shouldn't Need to Exist. And I'm really honest, like I'm really grateful that I've been able to write a book and I'm really pleased that I've been able to give the share the advice of my lived experience and other people that I've interviewed in this book. But really and truly, this book shouldn't need to exist because tech companies should be shouldering a lot more of this, this responsibility. So I explain why is this book having to exist? And the first thing is obviously patriarchy. Anything to do with gender is not a priority 
offline and it's really silly and actually it's quite inefficient because if you apply a gender lens to a lot of social problems particularly online abuse it would save us a lot of money in the problem in the in the long run it would save us a lot of heartache heartache and suffering in the long run as well because if we applied a gender lens to content moderation we would look at the power dynamics who is most likely to be abused or affected by but affected online. And we would make sure that policies and content moderation and um, systems were set up to keep the most safe online. But what you have is a patch making, plastering type of um, uh, solution from tech companies of dealing with things iteratively rather than at the source. So then you just keep making the same mistakes. And actually, if, you, if we applied a gender-based lens to the online space, when we saw harassment, when we saw violence, when we saw, you know, uh, terrible things happening with um, young young girls um, dying by suicide. If we addressed a lot of this stuff earlier on, COVID misinformation wouldn't have been as uh, predominant online as it is. We would have had a better handle on monkey monkeypox misinformation the way it is. We would have had a lot a better handle on a lot of the other um uh, harms that we see online that is impacting our democracy, the way people are being hacked. And this is only going to increase, right, with the cost of living getting worse. Crime offline will increase and so will crime online. And we just don't seem to have a handle on it because ultimately patriarchy always views gender or women's issues as less than, not important, and it's not resourced. So I talk a lot about how tech companies need to have diverse workforces, need to be working with civil society, need to be having lived experiences um, of people using their platforms um, at the center of what they do. I think also, like I said before, our language keeps diminishing um, um, online abuse as a, as a thing. So therefore, people suffer in silence, are not open about talking their, about their experiences. And tech company then get away with like, well, this doesn't seem to be a real issue because no one's talking about it. Or it's just, you know, a disagreement or debate when actually, no, it's a huge backlog of violent crimes that online is against the law, but you're not addressing um off uh, online and then finally i think we've got an issue of the fact that majority of tech companies are based in the us that have a real different stance to us in europe um and, and other parts of the of, of the world around what freedom of expression is but i'm quite clear in the book that doxing hate speech and harassment and hate raids on gaming platforms aren't freedom of expression aren't freedom of expression and clearly needs legislating um and I think you're right that data collection is key to this because Glitch has created um, ways in data, doing data collection. And we're a tiny, tiny organization, but we captured in 2020 during the first lockdown what, what the state of online abuse is, particularly for women um, and non-binary people. And we saw that online abuse increased by almost 40, uh, 43%. And this was particularly worse for black and minoritized women and non-binary people. So data collection is absolutely key, but you won't collect something that you don't care about. We need to make sure that tech companies care. And I think people need to have an understanding of just how huge the abuse is. I mean, we're not talking a, a comment here or a disagreement there. I, I witnessed it. I took part in a in a in a work project and I want to be careful and respectful in how I moved through it because mm -hmm. and because it wasn't my my story. It didn't happen to me. It happened to somebody else on the team. And mm. we were taking part in a, in, in a charity event and it was for um, 
a disabilities organization and it was able-bodied people taking part in something to, to raise awareness and money for disabled. And there were some criticisms from this disabled community, which I fully hear, heard and respect 100% that, that I, I take on board. But I didn't realize when I watched one of the other members get attacked online for taking part, there were groups in America involved. This had become like a global thing. You can really round up the troops for positive and you can round up the troops yeah. for negative that were just attacking that didn't even really weren't even really involved, just were like, this is what I believe in. So again, I'm going to say I'm really respectful and take on board because who am I to say you shouldn't be offended by what we were trying to do when I'm not in that marginalized group? So I think that's a really important point to make. But it made me see what can happen in a darker sense when it is racist, when it is sexist, when it is transphobic when it is ableist how a troop can just mm. be constantly on and I think the online world as you've said has brought about such amazing abilities for us to connect and as you said those minority groups to to connect with with others and and really positive communities to build but it's also brought out a very ugly side or mm. at least illuminated perhaps an ugly side we have as a society, like the forum groups that just oh, rip gosh. people online to shreds or, you know, here in Ireland, there's a lot of conversation. If there's a really serious road traffic accident, they're asking people to stop filming. I don't understand why it's somebody's innate uh, move to just get their phone out and start filming somebody mm. who is waiting for an ambulance to arrive and, and posting that online before their family have perhaps mm. heard about it. Mm, mm, and mm. I think it's because we're not having the conversation on, you know, you've touched on the responsibility of, of governments and tech companies there, but something that I think is really important that you get into in the book is our responsibility in this space. So you talk about the number of people who are being abused. So it was at 40% in the UK and the US figures, which I imagine, you know, hold up here in Ireland as well. Mm -hmm. And about 1% being the abusers. So that leaves a majority of 59% who wouldn't dream of causing abuse or, mm -hmm. or speaking mm -hmm. in an ugly way to somebody else online. Either way, it shows it's not good enough to just sit back and say, well, I wouldn't do that. We can't just be passive bystanders anymore. Mm -mm. No, gosh, Claire, there's so much in there around what's true accountability, vigilante kind of culture, um, what's appropriate, why have we been desensitized to, you know, be taking kind of really horrific uh, recordings and then putting it online, you know, keep it if it's evidence, definitely, you know, like George Floyd would not have probably got the access to justice. His family wouldn't have got the access to justice if it wasn't for that recording. But I, I took a real stance in 2020 to say, why does this need to keep being reshared? And why is this also being reshared without content warning or trigger, trigger warning labels so that us as in the black community can opt out of not having to see and be reminded every single day we are at risk of being harmed. Like I remember being in such a trauma response after George Floyd 
and get into a new relationship with a black man. And I remember feeling such anxiety when every time he'd go to Tesco's, because it was the one time we were allowed out <laughs> during lockdown, because I just didn't know what was going to happen. That's what happens when someone keeps sharing because they're thinking about likes and followers and activism just online and not doing the work offline. And I talk about this in the book. I talk about what's the difference between accountability and just wanting to basically dysregulate someone's nervous system. What's the difference between accountability and true uh, changing behavior and just wanting, wanting to punish someone. I think a lot of that um, requires self-reflection. Like, are you holding someone accountable? Or are you just wanting to really knock them out and really hurt them? That is not healthy and that is not how you're going to really affect change. Um, and I think also there's a cycle of trauma. Like you want to be, um, I think some people want to support somebody who's facing abuse. You know, you've got what the, you know, you talk, we talk, we hear a lot about the beehive or we hear a lot about like little mixers, you know, and you don't want to mess with them or Harry style fans. And, you know, if you dare criticize or provide a, a, a judgment on, on any of those celebrities, their fan base come for you and really come for you and dig up posts from back in the day that you forgot about. Is that actually accountability? Or are we looking for learned and true behavior? And I explore a lot of this in the book because it isn't, it's not a one size fits all. I think it's not the same um, tool that can be applied each each time. I think it is a case by case basis, but what's that ethical framework that we can apply to ourselves as online allies to make sure that we're not perpetuating harm? And then if we did, because we, and we didn't mean to, how do we apologize and be like, my bad, rather than getting stuck in like, well, I didn't mean it this way. And it just becomes this really toxic conflict. How do we do conflict resolution online? And I talk about that as well around how do we start having actual debate and conversation rather than reducing conversations to name calling and dragging up old social media posts. And I think um, you said this earlier around, you know, if it wasn't for my lived experience and what I went through, and yes, I would I would choose never to go through that. But would I have really have deep and understood the issue the way I understand it now? And I talk about this in my TED talk. No, and that's why I say to people don't wait to become an to become a, a survivor or victim of, of online abuse before you help make the world a better place. Because it's the same thing with the, with the conversations around climate change. We're not waiting for the world to literally go on fire anymore before we're co making calls for sustainability and doing more around a carbon footprint, footprint, right? We don't wait for people to become victims and survivors before we do something about it. And I think that's the essence of being a change maker. Like, yes, this doesn't directly affect you. You haven't gone through it, but you may know, you probably do know someone who has, or the, there's a likelihood that you've got a family member that may be going through it that can't talk to you about it how can you be a change maker and spark a conversation so that you are that auntie or you're you are that uncle you are that mum or dad that people can talk to about what they're going through online so where they're not suffering in silence how can you apply creativity empathy and be victim-centered in your conversations around the online space and I think if we really want to have true allyship, we really want to make sure that we're not entering that vigilante culture. We're entering a, a, a space of accountability and setting new social norms on our online spaces. Then we have to be committed to a journey, a lifelong journey of learning and unlearning and ending that cycle of violence by doing our part. Yeah, and I do. I think that's so important, that allyship, that you really do dig into in such a good way, not only with Glitch and there are so many resources on your website, but in the book, because there will be people that will say, 
oh, you know, that was just a one-off. I mean, yes, that's a crazy experience she went through, but I mean, that doesn't happen every day. And people are looking to victim blame, to label something. And we need the people who haven't experienced it or or, or even weren't even that conscious of it to, to stand up and stand in solidarity and bring about that change as much as the the, the victims who who stand up or the survivors who stand up and give their their lived experience. Tell us a little bit then about Glitch, because that was a huge change of you setting that up and eventually leaving office. Tell us about that, that, that decision and, and what that's meant. Yeah. Um, so I set up Glitch five and a bit years ago um, in 2017 after my experience. And it was, I just thought it was just going to be like a, like a, an, like a side hustle. I didn't think at all, like it was a campaign. It was really easy for me to kind of do campaigns because I was in politics and like really able to kind of galvanize people. And I, and, and I also wasn't the only one facing it. So it was like, let's do something about this. And then it, because of, how many people were going through out through it and because there wasn't so many organizations at the time talking about this from a from a gender lens there was such huge support and 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 people wanting to donate and volunteer that slowly it became a charity um in 2020 and glitches set up to because of a huge determination to want to make the online space safe for everybody. And we do this by encouraging people to be digital citizens and tech companies to do a whole lot more around online safety. And I think where Glitch has now, uh, is now evolved to, which is really exciting, especially now I've come back after a three month sabbatical, I'm really, really keen. And I talk about this in the last chapter of my book as well. How do we create ways that the most marginalized can enjoy the online space. I think there's a tendency when we talk about change making to only focus on the real extreme violations to our lives, which makes sense. Like we wanna be free from death and violence and child marriage and all of these really, really horrific, scary um, things. But that also then distracts us from the freedom to enjoy things, freedom to enjoy the online space, freedom to um, make mistakes and thrive and experiment and reimagine. And that's that's the bit that I'm really excited that Glitch is transitioning to around how do we reimagine our online spaces and relationships with each other and tech? And how do we have that with a real feminist and black feminist lens? And what is your advice to people then? I, I, as you were talking about George Floyd and and in the context of this conversation, I was thinking about how initially I felt when everyone was sharing the, the black tile to show their solidarity and then there was a backlash against that. And initially I, I felt, but my intention was so good. I was thinking of anyone in my friendship group um, of colour to show them that I abhorred anything like this. But actually, then I had to take another step back and say, but that's not enough. That's not enough mm. to just share that tile. And and then the conversation moved on again, that it wasn't just a criticism. It was like, educate yourself, find mm. out more, call it out, speak up, stand up. We just can't be passive in this. And it comes back to what you said in the beginning. It is that coming back to what are your ideals what is it that is important to you and how do you want to move in through the world and and that's the kind of mind frame 
we need, not just online, but within our societies, because there are huge things at, at play here. And we have to believe that if we come together as a collective, recognizing and respecting each other's differences, that we can make big change and be a part of the change. But it can't be a passive thing. No. Yes, I think um, uh, a friend of mine, fellow author um, and teacher, uh, Nova Reed, who has a book called The Good Ally, she calls um, that time in 2020 Black Square Summer, which always makes me laugh. <laughs> And I, and I, and I, and I get the initial intention, like, oh my God, this is a horrific thing. What do I need to do? And I think that's, that's what we need to get away from, like always being in a reactive mode, but making sure we give ourselves spaciousness and time to be like, how do I want to meaningfully respond to this? I think the other issue with the, with the Black Square Summer and performance on, on online in general, because it's not just been Black Square Summer, it's been boycotts in, in red, red squares and boycotts online with the football and online abuse in football. It's been this, uh, we've seen uh, in the past um, two months on TikTok, there was a we're going to go red on TikTok because of the bodily, um, the bodily, the attack on bodily autonomy in the US um, with Roe v. Wade being overturned. We, you know, beforehand, I remember being in school and there was a thing around wearing pins. White people should wear pins, safety pins on their on their jackets when they're traveling so that um, a person of color would know they could sit next to them. There's always been some kind of like, let's do a performance thing. Let's wear a bag. Let's wear a T-shirt. And I think where we want system change, it has to be more than that. And I think that's where the criticism came. Um, and I think when 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 you've got performance online, which I also talk about the book, it's the work of being an ally isn't just about being online or isn't just about what you can do online. It's what you're doing offline. There's no point brands doing Black Square Summer and they're not paying their most marginalized workforces the living wage. <laughs> There's no point doing the LGBTQIA plus rainbow or flag on your Instagram or your LinkedIn profile if you don't have inclusive HR policies where people can be themselves and embrace their sexuality um, or you still have policies that do he and she. Like, I, I, I think it's a, those moments are about real introspection and saying like, what is, what, how am I going to play a piece in this puzzle of system change? How am I going to be a change maker that's beyond changing your, um, profile photos. And don't get me wrong, there are some times where that is needed. I engaged in um, when there was the uh, civil war and the protests out, um, break, breaking out in um, Sudan, and there was a moment to turn our display pictures blue. I felt that was really important, but that wasn't the only thing that I did. I thought it was really important because one, Western media doesn't cover that story. So there was genuinely a need to be like, why is your why is your profile blue? What's the story? What's going on? And signpost people to that. But then what else was I doing? And that what I made sure I did for like a few days afterwards was intentionally follow activists and campaigners from Sudan. I made sure that I was retweeting them and amplifying them. And we talk a lot, of, I talk a lot about this in my book and we talk a lot about this at Glitch about it's not just amplifying the cause in the moment. It's not just amplifying LGBT human rights during Pride, but all the time and giving them a platform and making sure that they have a seat at the table, they have um, equity online because often you don't really see diverse voices get amplified online unless it's like the right 
month of the year, Holocaust, Black History Month or LGBT uh, month, as if there isn't, um, there isn't 11 other months that affect us all. Um, it's about making sure you, you um, are amplifying them, you're supporting them and where possible donating. We live in a capitalist world where money does help things happen and does help provide safety and refuge. We asked people to donate to Glitch during 2020 so we could provide free training to Black Lives Matter activists. We have another training coming up in September. So if you are a Black activist of any sort, of any kind, change maker, and want to get more support with how to stay safe online, please check out Glitch's website. We have a free training there, thanks to a donation from Dr. Shola, um, a Black activist, um, that we can do this. And so I think it's about where, it's about being intentional and a bit more tangible than just changing your profile photo um, for three days. Yeah, and I and I, I've heard that spoken about a lot that we need to have social media and tech working for us rather than it being in control of us. So you do talk a lot about digital self care and looking at curating our feeds, um, mm-hmm. looking at our passwords, really simple things, what we have public and what we have private, and just being intentional as we move, not only as an ally, as an activist, but just as a a digital citizen. Can I ask you finally then, because often I do ask this of the the change makers I have on, when you're dealing with something of such magnitude as you are at Glitch, how do you handle that? Because I think people often feel paralyzed to inaction because of the, the the weight of the task at hand. So things like climate change, people are like, oh God, can I really make a difference by, you know, clearing out my yogurt pot and throwing it in the in the bin? Is that really going to to make a difference? How do you navigate through the David and, and Goliath idea that you might have in your mind? Although we need to replace David with Davina. i love that so so i understand the question you're asking how do we keep going and not get basically burnt out or disgruntled or unmotivated to to, unmotivated by how big the the issue is right yeah um i think the first thing is definitely have a clear vision like we can't do everything and you've got amazing black feminist scholars who talk about self-care and how to be intentional about your activism and they also talk about like needing to reckon with the fact that change may not come in your lifetime or the change the systemic change you want to overhaul may not come in your lifetime and you can't do everything and I think that's coming to peace with that and I think there's a real guilt or FOMO or like shaming that happens online like of like people's morning routines and people like um um, parenting extremely well and then they're taking out the bins and then they're donating and they, you know, like you see the best of people online it can make you feel really really crap about yourself and you just got to remember that you're doing your bit really well and you can be encouraged and inspired by people but don't be don't be now in the shame and the negativity. That doesn't work for anybody. Brené Brown talks a lot about how shame doesn't work for anyone. So I think it's really being grounded in where you're going to contribute and be really clear on your vision around that. I think the second is to be um, intentional when you're running an organization or you're running a campaign, make sure you have regular breaks. And I talk a lot about this in the book and I have a newsletter where I talk about being on sabbatical and how that pause and that moment was really about 
having a new relationship with the vision, updating, evolving, making sure that I was aligned with my body, mind, spirit and soul and how I wanted to show up in the world. So I think carving out regular time and break and not feeling guilty about taking time out is really, really important. And I think the third thing is making sure you're in a community with other people. So I Glitch doesn't stand alone. We are in an ecosystem with other change makers, other activists, other founders and social entrepreneurs that are trying to make gender-based violence online and offline better to actually kill it, to dead it, so, so it doesn't exist. And so it's really great to be working in collaboration with them when it comes to fundraising applications, when it comes to just venting, when it comes to the hardship of running an organization and also a movement. Um, and, and that's really key, being in community. And I think finally, it is really not getting... Um, dissuade by how important small steps are how important language is and I sometimes do it I'm like who's gonna care about this book because it's like there's so much more to do and like is it enough and like actually what I give here in this book around language and around intentionality and around spaciousness and around community is the stepping stones and that's okay and I think often capitalism and white supremacy forces us to think that something has to be perfect and well and well like thought out and planned, which is real BS because it's not like this system is well thought out and planned because look how crap it is and what it does to people. And I think we often get caught up and I do it as well, like, oh, if it's not really perfectly formed and it's not like a 10 year roadmap, it's not important. No, I think the first thing is a funnel. How do we get more people in, more change makers, more people involved in the conversation. And I think that starts with language, that starts with conversation, that starts with being intentional. And then we can expand again. Then we can, you know, drill down on some specific roadmaps and stuff. But I think we often we often disregard how important those small stepping stones are. When I when I tell my story, when I um when I do other podcasts, when I'm on the news, the things that people take away from it is not even the objective that I have for doing that interview. And I think that's a reminder of like, don't forget to start up small. That's why recycling when it comes to climate change is so important. That's why challenging men and their toxic masculinity and their language is so important because we know what it leads to. We know tackling dehumanizing language is so important because we know that triangle of what leads to genocide we know it starts with dehumanizing language so never ever underestimate the small steps have that as part of your kind of vision as well I guess I absolutely love that that's given me chills and I have to say that section of the book where you talk about perfectionism and that constant striving how damaging that is and how tied up it is in the patriarchy and capitalism and it's so important that it's okay to make mistakes it's important to take breaks and it's important to take small steps. Well, Shay Akiwoo, you are doing your bit really well. Thank you so <laughs> much for all that you have done. The book is called How to Stay Safe Online, a digital self-care toolkit for developing resilience and allyship. And I'll put details in the show notes of how people can find out more about Glitch. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.